Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to through 23. As you probably have guessed, if you've been with us last number of weeks and months, you know we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We're nearing the end of this most famous sermon of our Lord Jesus, um, this manifesto, as it has been called, the manifesto of the King, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, and explicating uh, what happens and what's required for his kingdom, what happens in it, what is required. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Let me read there to set these words in your mind before we begin the exposition of the text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I am using as a title for these verses two confessions. Two confessions. What is more important than one's eternal destiny? Nothing. In our text, Jesus makes this point with utter clarity as he transports us prophetically to the time of judgment. He presents to us the real case in the future of those who are deceived about their standing with God. They thought they were heaven-bound, but actually hell-bound. They failed to heed his summons to enter the narrow gate into the kingdom of heaven, that is, the realm of salvation. These people, you need to understand this, they're not atheists. They're religious people. But they're self-deceived people. They're lost people. They're false Christians. They're false disciples. And that's the sobering reality about what this text is teaching that there will be people who on that day will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ wondering why are they there at that judgment why are they there to be evaluated and then told to depart from his presence first thing we'll look at the first heading for the exposition of this text is empty confession empty confession. You see in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, let's stop there at that comma. Uh, There are two groups of people who confess that Jesus is Lord. One group is the not everyone group. The other group is the some. You'll notice not everyone. So there's some who will say, Lord, Lord, and they will enter. There's the other group who will say, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have two groups represented here in our Lord's words in verse 21. The one group, the not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is the group that Jesus addresses here in our text. Now, both groups confess that Jesus is Lord. But that's where this similarity between them ends. 
the not everyone people acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Their confession of him as Lord is correct. They affirm the truth of who he is. They call him Lord. That word Lord, kurios in the original, is a title for deity. It is used that way in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22. Used that way in the same book, chapter 2 verse 15. And in chapter 5 verse 33, he is Lord, he is deity. John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 3, ascribed deity to Jesus as he proclaims him as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 40, verse 3. And we're familiar with Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that is used there as well for Jesus as deity. And that text, in fact, is Paul's exposition of Romans chapter 10, verse 13, which is a quotation of the Old Testament book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, in which calling on the name of the Lord refers to calling on Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. To address Jesus as Lord is to call him Yahweh. It is to ascribe to him deity. It is to say that he is God. Now you need to understand something here. That the use of the term Lord was a substitute for God's personal name by the Jews. They didn't want to say the personal name of God. They didn't want to say Yahweh. So they would say Lord instead. And the reason they did this was because they believed God's name to be too holy to be uttered. But there will be some people at this future judgment that Jesus is talking about here. Who will know who he is. They will have correct Christology. That is the doctrine of Christ. They will affirm his deity. They know his true identity. They confess this truth about the person of Christ. Intellectually, they know that he is God. That's an amazing reality. These people who are lost, as the text unfolds and declares this to be so, they will stand before Jesus Christ and who will be their judge, and they will recognize that he is the true God. But the confession, their intellectual understanding, and the confessing that is derived from it is an empty one. It's an empty confession. Because Jesus is crystal clear about the implication of his lordship. It's more than just an intellectual assent. It's more than just simply calling him Lord. Or recognizing that he's God. The implication of this brought out in Luke chapter 6 verse 46. Where he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There is an inextricable nexus between calling him Lord and obeying him. You cannot legitimately, from Jesus' point of view, separate calling him who he is, acknowledging who he is, and not doing what he says. If he indeed is Lord, that means you will do what he says. Jesus' words, not mine. 
Obedience is non-negotiable to true salvation. Do understand that. Don't be deceived by people who will say, as I understood as I was growing up, people in the church would talk about people who didn't serve Christ, didn't ever come to church. They didn't do anything, but they claimed to be Christians. and They had always tagged them with, this, oh, they're just carnal. They called them carnal Christians. Uh, no, they were carnal or fleshly, but they weren't Christians. There are a lot of people who think that I came to Jesus Christ and he is my savior and I might get around to letting him be Lord. No, 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 no. Jesus doesn't come in halfway. You can't have a half of a Jesus. When you receive Jesus, you receive all of him. You receive him as Lord and savior, not savior. And maybe down the road, if I feel like it and I think about it. I might surrender a little bit to you and you can be my Lord. No, no, no. He's Lord from the get go. And there are a lot of people who have been deceived by this idea that you can have a divided Christ. He is Savior, but yeah, I don't know about this Lord thing. No, 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 no. Jesus 646. It's clear. It's clear. Right confession without obedience to the one claimed as Lord means that the verbal confession is utterly empty. Just words. Just words. You see, life and lip must match. Jesus' deity cannot simply be the acknowledgement of his lordship. It cannot be simply an intellectual affirmation. And that reality is brought out, I believe, again in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you know the rest of the verse, and believe that God has raised him, that you shall be saved. The Lordship there is a critical issue. It means more, as I've stated, than a simple acknowledgement that he is God. It means more than that he is the universal sovereign. He is that. Jesus is sovereign God over the entire universe. Second person of the Trinity, God, he is deity. All the attributes of God he possesses, he indeed is universal Lord. But it means more than just acknowledging in Romans 10, 9, that he is that. You can't have less than that for salvation, but it's more than that for salvation. You see, Romans 10, 9 has to be considered in light of Jesus's words in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. So what this means is that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are confessing, yes, not only is he global Lord, but he is my personal Lord. You're saying, I come under his submission. I come under his authority. My life now is not under my lordship. It is under his lordship. When you come to Christ, you change the authority figure in your life. Now, notice as Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and what? Follow me. That's the reality. The lordship of Jesus Christ is indispensable to true salvation. Don't let anybody ever dissuade you from this reality. Don't let anybody dichotomize Christ in your mind and thinking and certainly your practice. Understand that he is Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what the angel said, is it not? Today born for you in this town of Bethlehem is Christ Jesus the Savior who is the Lord. Luke 2. 1 Peter chapter 1 
verse 2 informs us that the goal of salvation is, quote, to obey Jesus Christ. You know, that's in the salutation, and you can overlook that. You can read those words and not get that, that obedience to Jesus Christ is why he saved you. It's the goal. It's the goal. He saved you for sin, from sin, so that you wouldn't live in it any longer, right? Obey Jesus Christ, such as uh, the expression of true salvation. When one has come to Christ, one acknowledges that he is one's boss. Now, here's the reality. These people said the right thing. They had the right theology. They had the right, specifically, Christology. They understood who Jesus is. But you will notice something here. Um, Jesus says, who enters his kingdom? Verse 21, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Here's the reality. Doing the will of the Father is performing the moral and spiritual will of God the Father. That, that moral and spiritual will is detailed here in the Sermon on the Mount. As we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen what Jesus has commanded, what Jesus teaches about true righteousness over against false righteousness, the false righteousness of the hypocrites, the Pharisees. And he teaches what kingdom people look like, what beatitude people look like, and how they live. They've entered into the kingdom. They, they, were, they recognized their bankruptcy, and they... Ask God to save them and recognize I had nothing. And they entered the kingdom and then they live a particular way, the way that God lays out in, or Christ lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. And we can extend that, of course, to the epistles, to the churches, Galatians, Ephesians. It's a reality. Now, I want you to get this point. The will of the Father in heaven is the same as obeying Jesus Christ. You say, well, how can we make that connection? Because what Jesus teaches is what God the Father gave him to teach. Jesus said that in John chapter 7, verse 16. Write it down and look it up and study it. In John chapter 12, verses 48 through 50, the same thing. His commandment wasn't his. He didn't initiate those things. He got them from the Father. So what Jesus teaches is exactly what God the Father wanted him to teach. Therefore, obedience to the word of God in Jesus' teaching indicates true discipleship. You're truly uh, his. You're truly in his family. In Matthew chapter 12, I think it is, Matthew chapter 12, verse 49, verse 48. No, let me start at verse 46. I want to set the whole thing up for you. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside speaking, seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever, get this, does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. If you do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven, then you're in his family. Doing the will of his, his Father. So in the family of God, it's a spiritual reality. And in John chapter 8, Jesus uh, knew there were people who had a superficial belief in him. Um, it didn't really uh, transform them, and they, they believed for a while. And there are people like that. People will become attached to Jesus and his teaching and the church and all of that for a while. But that, that is not the test of genuine salvation or discipleship. It's not at all. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said this. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, they, that made some profession of faith in him. But he says, now here you need to understand this. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Initial belief is not sufficient for evidence for salvation. There has to be continuance in Jesus' words. There's continued, continued obedience to Jesus Christ. Then you're his disciple. You'll persevere. True Christians persevere in the faith, by the way. They will continue following Jesus Christ all the days of their life. There's not this business of, um, oh, I used to be a Christian. I am, um, I used to follow him. I, I used to, no, no, no. It's, if you are one, you are going to follow him all your days of your life. Colossians chapter uh, 1 says, this in verse 22 yet he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach now here paul's caveat here verse 23 if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard perseverance stay there continue in indeed you are his that's the reality True, true believers, I want you to get this point. True believers are transformed at conversion and their lives manifest the presence and power of the Lord. Sanctification begins with or at justification. There's no such person as a carnal Christian. Either you're a Christian or you ain't. I had to put it that way because I wanted to get your attention. <laughs> There's some people they want to be in this kind of gray area. No, 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 no. It's black or white. Doing the will of God. Now, you notice something in this text here. But he does the will of my Father. This is an ongoing reality, it's not a one off deal. It's not, well, I, you know, I, I did it every now and then. Um, my, the preponderance of my life and my lifestyle is not the will of the Father. Well, then you can't check that box that you're a Christian. 
the one who does the will of my Father. And again, I'll reiterate, uh, it's the will of the Father is found in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you've got to forgive people. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> you've got to forgive people. And you will. Do you not know you'll be persecuted? If you're really living and standing for Jesus Christ? Do you not know? They're, they're, you, we've been through it, haven't we? Amen. It's quite clear. You can't hate people. You have to be morally pure. Jesus said, um, if lust is causing you a problem, you need to cut off a body part. Not literally, but he's saying you need to deal radically with that sin. It's internal righteousness. It's not merely external activity. You can't live your life worrying about stuff either. After all, does he not take care of us? The will of my Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus said. So to confess that Jesus is Lord, our God, call him that, and there's no obedience to the will of the Father, that's an empty confession. It's meaningless. So there's empty confession as a religious claim. Now there at the day of judgment, notice something in verse 22. Many will say on me on that day, in the foregoing, verse 21, and the following in verse 22 and 23, these things will occur on that day. The phrase does not refer to a general day of judgment. A lot of people think that the day of judgment is just one single day out there in the future and God is going to collect all the believers and all the unbelievers and all they're going to all get together and God's going to do this kind of separating. Boom, take, ah, you believe, you don't believe. No, 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 it's not like the Bible does not teach a single day of judgment. There are distinctions in the judgments. In fact, uh, this distinguishing of judgments, we can see, for example, uh, the Bema Seed uh, of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, that's for believers only. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul talked about 2 Timothy 1 18, that day, 2 Timothy 4 8, that day. And then in Philippians 1, he says, the day of Christ. All of those refer to Christians and their judgment. And only Christians will be there. In 2 uh, Timothy, I think it is, chapter 4, where Paul counsels uh, Timothy in his pastor, he said, in view of the Father and the Son and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, preach the word. There's that reality that Christians, because somebody's wondering, well, what is this judgment that Christians will undergo? Well, let me tell you, the judgment that Christians will undergo is a judgment that is not for their salvation because you are at that judgment, you are already saved. You will not be at this judgment if you're a true Christian. That's for unbelievers. The text is clear here in our text, Matthew 7. 
Christians are not going to be judged as to whether they get into heaven or not. That's already a for sure thing because we've come to truly know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and our salvation is secure. We are going to be in heaven, but what we will be evaluated for at the Bema seat, our judgment seat of Christ, is what we did with the service and opportunities that were given to us by Christ for his name and his kingdom. What did you do with them? You say, how can Jesus remember all that? Because he's omniscient. Did, did we not say he's Lord? Do you not think he knows everything? He's not like you. You forget a phone number. Transpose numbers. You say, why did you say that about us? Because I'm like that too. <laughs> I know. But he remembers everything because he's omniscient. He knows everything. And so he knows everything we've ever done. No, we'll do all of it. He will know all of that. Even I think that when it says the books will be open in Revelation uh, 20 concerning the unbelievers, I think that really represents the mind of God. God doesn't need books. He doesn't have to sit up in heaven. Oh, let me. Hmm. No, that's for our comprehension. Because who do you know that knows everything? I know you know some people who think they do, but I'm talking about some, some people who really know no one. In Psalm 148, I believe it is, or 145, there's no limit to his understanding. That's mind-boggling. There is no limit to his understanding. Everything we know has a limit. But when it comes to the mind of God, there is none. That's hard to wrap our minds around. That you never reach the end point of the knowledge of God. Hmm. Well, he's God. And I'm glad. I'm glad that there's nothing he doesn't know. He knows everything. Because it scared me if there was something out there he didn't know. And I came up on him and he said, well, let me think about that. I didn't realize. I didn't expect that. There are no surprises with him. And he knows everything about our service. He knows everything about our commitment to him. He knows about your prayers for people. Your evangelizing for people. Your service in this local assembly. Your service to Christ wherever. He knows all of that. And he's keeping a record of He knows when you did it for his glory. And you did it to advance his cause in his name. He knows that. And he will remind you of it and reward you for it. On that day. But that day that's spoken about here is not the day that we're talking about for Christians. This is for those who think they're Christians they're not it's the day of divine judgment as it is in verse 21 and as it is in verse 22 you notice Jesus says me he's the divine judge the father has given Jesus the administration of judgment over all humanity 
Men will have to be confronted with Jesus Christ, even in this world where they take his name in vain, they treat him contemptuously, they dismiss him and all of that. One day they're going to have to stand before him, see him in his glory and power and give an account of their lives before him. So on that day. When he summons them, men, living or dead. Now get this, people will be dead and they're going to be resurrected to stand before Jesus Christ. Unbelievers, nobody, some people think when I die, that's just the end of it. No, it isn't. A person dies and they go to Hades or a place of punishment waiting for the final uh, hell, lake of fire. They're there suffering. And these people will, are there and they'll be resurrected. Some of them have been dead for centuries and they'll be resurrected to stand before Jesus Christ. And they will say, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? These people are desperate. The reality of the final judgment staring them in the face. They're looking at eternal doom. They've already suffered all this point. Now they're up before the sovereign judge of the universe. And they thought that they were his. And so they come before him facing the inescapable and inevitable doom of divine judgment. In his final form. And they got to make a claim. To get into heaven. And you see the phrase. In your name is repeated. Three times is stated in this verse. In fact. In the Greek text. It's in the emphatic position. I mean they're emphasizing. In your name. In your name. In your name. Didn't we do these things. What are these things? What does it mean, first of all, in your name? They're saying, Jesus, we invoked your power and authority to perform these miraculous feats. That's what in your name means. We invoked your name, your authority, your power to cast out demons, to do works of power or miracles. We this all in your name. But these people are not in the kingdom. They're not going to get in the kingdom. They're excluded from the kingdom. They're unbelievers, but yet they did these things. How do we explain these supernatural acts? Supernatural works done apparently by people who had no relationship savingly with Jesus Christ. Let's use some examples from the Bible. Some people did some miraculous things, but were not for real. Balaam, he always comes to mind. He had the gift of prophecy. Numbers 23 verse 5 says, Quote, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. He had divine revelation. But Balaam was not a true prophet of God. He was not a redeemed man. He counseled, in fact, Israel to transgress against the Lord. Numbers 31 verse 16. 
No true man of God will counsel anybody to sin against God. In 2 Peter 2.15, when Peter talks about false teachers in the church, guess who's listed there? False prophets in the church, guess who's listed there? 2 Peter 2.15, they mimic Balaam. It says about Balaam, he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was a prophet for hire. That's why Balak said, come and curse Israel for me. And Balaam said, yes, I'll do it. And God said, no, you're not. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. And he ended up blessing Israel. You can read it in numbers. He's a phony. Another who is, to me, is more astounding is Judas Iscariot. He preached and cast out demons. I remember when I first came up on this some years back, I, was, I said, wow. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus summoned his 12, verse 1, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then he names them. He names his 12. Verse 4, the last in the list is this, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Think about this. Judas, he preached the gospel. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. And Judas is in hell. He is a son of perdition. He didn't belong to Christ. But he did these miraculous acts by divine power don't be fooled by people who appear or in some cases actually do some things like that doesn't mean they're a Christian divine power then there are those who do it by demonic power in Acts chapter 16 verses 16 through 19 there's a slave girl you recall that Paul and um, Silas were in Philippi and there's a slave girl falling around. She had a spirit of divination of foretelling, fortune telling and she was working and Paul just got tired of it. Exercised the demon in the power of Jesus Christ and the girl could no longer tell the future so her uh, people uh, who were over her got rid of her. In the end times uh, in the book of Revelation there will be those there will be satanically energized miracles so we have God's power, there's demonic power, there's a third possibility, claims of these people here in this verse, verse 22, it could be just false claims, they're lying. But Jesus never challenged the factuality of their claim. He didn't say, no, that didn't happen. He didn't say that at all. But let me tell you here, their confession was empty, they make religious claims of things that they claim to do. Perhaps some actually did. But here, this is what matters. Eternal consequence. What Jesus says in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Those have to be the worst words any human being can ever hear. You're standing before Jesus Christ. You know who he is. And he looks at you and say, says, I never knew you. We've already alluded to this omniscience. So he is not saying, I, I don't know who you are. He knows who they are. He knows everything about them. And he knew that they're self-deceived, professing Christians. Christians in name only. He didn't know them in a saving relationship with them. Um, that word know can be a, it's a Hebrew idiom for intimacies like between a man and his wife. <laughs> that kind of knowing, that intimate relationship, that wasn't the case between Jesus and these in intimacy of knowledge and knowing. John chapter 10. It's clear, it says, verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. And my own know me. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. And they follow me. He knows them, and they follow him. If these uh, individuals standing there before the Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to say to them these awful words, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Depart from me, the final sentence to hell. At that precise moment when he gives that statement, off to hell they go, that is to the lake of fire. They practice lawlessness, the present tense, this continuous regular action. They're lawless, they're disobedient to God's word, God's law. Jesus earlier said a good tree cannot bear that sort of fruit, God, lawlessness. Remember, we saw that here. There has to be obedience and true Christians will. Let me show you. There's a distinction. I think I'm going to go over here to 1 John 3. You all want to go with me on this little excursion? Okay, good. Turn over there with me. And we will look at what it says. 1 John 3. Here's a, a, a clear reality. It's important. First John 3, verse 4, and succeeding verses. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. Is the delineation quite clear here? Lawless people who do not cherish and love the word of God, who do not practice it, the heart's not in conformity with it, are not God's people. They practice lawlessness. They sin. Present tense. I know you're worried now. Because you say, well, I, I'm, <clears throat> I failed. I don't pray, but I failed. Of course, of course. John's quite black and white. But his point is, if the lifestyle is such that lawlessness is the reality, that's indicative of being a lost person, not a Christian. Don't be deceived by that. Christians do fail. There is no Christian who doesn't fail or doesn't sin except the ones in heaven. But there's a big difference between true Christians and false Christians. True Christians, they, when they fail, they confess their sin. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, we confess our sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we confess our sin. Paul understood this. Remember, in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, he detailed his struggle with indwelling sin. He wanted to do that which is the good, as he called it, the good is the law of God. He didn't keep it perfectly. That was his desire. But because of indwelling sin, he failed. He struggled. But he also said in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, we joyfully concur with the divine law in the inner man. (laughs) The inner man, the renewed man, the saved man, he wants to concur, agree, and he does with the law of God. Romans 8, 4, we who are Christians, we see the law of God fulfilled in our life because we walk according to the Spirit. There's a difference, a profound difference between who one, one who lives in his sin and one who deals with his sin. True Christian, true child of God deals with his or her sin. The true child of God grows and sins less and less. The trajectory of their life is greater holiness, less sin. But the person who is not a child of God, theirs is one of sinfulness. They demonstrate that they are a child of the devil, not a child of God. What is more important than eternal life, eternal one's eternal destiny? What is the most important thing? Truly knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that will work out in one living for his glory and honor. Would you agree with that? Amen. Well, you agree with the truth. You agree with the word of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for um, these sobering truths. We pray that we as the people of God will uh, uh, take these to greater, greater depth in our hearts, greater seriousness, and help us to um, personally 
embody these truths and help people who are deceived to know the truth about what it really truly means to be a follower of Jesus Christ for their souls are at stake we thank you for your mercy and warning people giving us this record so anybody who's on the way that is broad not enter a narrow gate can change roads enter a narrow gate by faith in Jesus Christ love and serve him by the grace of God upon them we pray these things will be done for your glory and praise in the name of Christ I pray amen